we will use the debt ceiling as leverage to force real and meaningful structural reforms to fix the underlying problem. That is the official position of the Republican Congress. As leverage. Nice economy you got there. Hate to see something happen to it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nice. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Well. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. A little scared. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. But not too much. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both Internet and terrestrial. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, now in our 20th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We will be joined ourselves momentarily, and it has been a... uh, Redonkulously long time, Desi Doyen, <laughs> since he's been with us. Yes, redonkulously is a is a is a very good it's, word for it. Uh, yes, there is no explanation for why it's been so long, and yet we will soon be joined by our old friend Kevin Drum, formerly of Washington Monthly's Political Animal and Mother Jones. And frankly, I don't know why it's been so long since we've since he's been on, but I am glad that he is back with his good old Kevin Drum common sense. Indeed. Uh, in this case, on the dumb debt ceiling and a way the Democrats might wish to consider moving forward, whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his far right radical Republicans in the House decide to shoot the American and global economy in the head or not to make some vague political point, which I don't know that anybody ever even understands. Uh, anyway, they may do that when it comes to the debt ceiling. I will. Uh, I also will ask Kevin Drum about two points that we haven't really discussed on this show since the latest in iteration of the GOP debt ceiling hostage taking threat. Uh, the platinum coin idea. Ah, uh, yes. Which you've probably heard of. Or the trillion dollar coin. And the constitutional amendment idea, the section four of the 14th Amendment that uh, seems to make the entire idea of a debt limit unconstitutional. So uh, much to talk about with Mr. Drum shortly. But on the subject of those far right radical Republicans in the House, yesterday on the program, 
I tried to help y'all sort of get ready, sort of get all warmed up for what is absolutely coming for the next year or two from the uh, out-of-their-brains moonbat wingnut Republicans in the U.S. House who are hell-bent right now on spending the next two years not legislating, not working to actually you know, win parts of their legislative agenda, whatever that legislative agenda might actually be. We, I, I don't think anybody knows. I don't even think they know what it is at this point, as they're so brain-addled from lies about stolen elections and other conspiracies, uh, you know, not fighting for some so-called conservative agenda because they don't actually have one. Instead, they are focused on trying to win the 2024 election somehow by holding all sorts of insane so-called investigations in the U.S. House committees like the House Judiciary Committee led by Jim Jordan of Ohio or the House Oversight Committee now led by a guy named James Comer of Kentucky, who I suspect we will all get to know over the next few months and years, or even the more whacked out nonsense, if you can imagine such a thing, that I, I tried to gird you for a little bit yesterday. The uh, the so-called Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, which is also chaired by Jim Jordan. It's been created by Republicans for the first time this uh, this session. One big question right now, as we discussed on the show yesterday, is whether the U.S. corporate media and and Democrats in Congress or at the White House, whether they're all prepared and or capable enough to respond effectively to the torrent of lies and nonsense that will be coming at all of us in the coming months. Are you ready for it? It'll be coming from folks like Jim Jordan and James Comer, not to mention, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greenses and the Matt Gateses and the Paul Gosars and the Andy Biggses. Etc. To that end, to sort of further help you get ready for where all of this madness is going, whether we like it or not, and whether we're all, we're all prepared for it or not, here is the powerful new chair of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, on CNN with Pamela Brown uh, this week. And, and I think she does a very good job of trying to hold this guy to account, discussing plans, uh, Comer is, for his committee to investigate so-called influence peddling by Joe Biden and by the Biden family, not by the former influence peddler in chief, Donald Trump, mind you, and the Trump family, two of uh, whose members, by the way, actually worked at the White House with Trump as senior aides, Ivanka and Jared Kushner, but by the Biden family. Give it a listen. Now, what's different with Joe Biden is we're investigating the Biden family for influence peddling. We have uh, a strong suspicion that people around Joe Biden, mainly in his family, uh, have been peddling access to the Biden family with our adversaries around the world. When we find out that they have multiple classified documents scattered throughout multiple uh, residences and office buildings across the East Coast, then this raises a, a huge red flag for us. We want to make sure that those documents uh, in the possession of, of Joe Biden weren't somehow 
sent to our adversaries and, and didn't somehow compromise our national security. But but you've also talked about how you worried about the same situation with the Trump family. Trump had 300 plus documents in Mar-a-Lago. Why, aren't, why don't you have that same concern? I mean, people, there are visitors going in and out of Mar-a-Lago from different countries, including China. There's been a Chinese spy who was arrested at Mar-a-Lago and, and it was in an unsecure location at Mar-a-Lago. So would you apply that same concern evenly across the board? If someone can show me evidence that uh, there was influence peddling with those classified documents uh, that were in the possession of, of President Trump, then uh, we would certainly but, expand but that, that Chinese evidence? spy was in Mar-a-Lago, which do you is have evidence? public, private place. Do you the, have the, evidence of influence the, the peddling with the classified with the documents? From Biden, sorry, do you ma'am. have evidence? But do you have evidence of the classified document influence peddling from Biden? It sounds like you don't. You're looking into it, but why wouldn't you look into it in the we same way? We are looking into it, but we have evidence that the Biden family has been uh, very cozy with uh, people from the uh, Chinese Communist Party. We have evidence that Hunter Biden was receiving uh, payments uh, that were that were linked directly to the Chinese Communist Party through those Chinese energy companies. We're very mm-hmm. concerned about. All the but money how that, is that connected uh, to classified documents? In Ukraine. Well, we don't know. We want to look. We see there's one right. email that's been identified that is suspicious that we want to look into. We want to make sure that there's one email that was on Hunter Biden's laptop wasn't one of the of the classified documents. So I think there's ample reason to be concerned. Okay, right. So uh, ample reason to be concerned. But if you don't know if the classified documents that you want to look at or look into are related to your concerns about Joe Biden or the Biden families and their business deals. And you want to look into it to find out that's fine. Do. But why wouldn't you look at the very same thing when there is far more evidence of, yes, influence peddling going on even today by the Trump family? Yeah, I mean, five minutes after they left the White House, Jared Kushner got a $2 billion investment from Saudi Arabia. I'm sure that had nothing to do with his time in the White House. Comer has uh, no answer for any of this. Of course, he doesn't actually uh, care about influence peddling by the previous administration because it's not actually about so-called influence peddling. It's trying to catch someone in the Biden family doing something that they can use to somehow impeach and or run against Joe Biden in two years. That's it, period. It's End a, of yeah, story. A fishing expedition. They have no interest in actually, you know, unearthing crimes to hold the powerful accountable because there is a, you know, a huge orange target right there that they're hoping to try to figure out how to ignore completely. Good luck to them. As David Badash reported yesterday at Alternate, the powerful chair of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, is being highly mocked after declaring that he will investigate President Joe Biden for influence peddling, despite admitting there is little, if any, evidence that President Biden has engaged in influence peddling. And mockery, by uh, by the way, I believe is just the right thing here in truth. We need more mockery. When uh, pressed, he pointed to Biden's classified documents in one alleged email from Hunter Biden's laptop. But when pressed again by a frustrated CNN host, as you heard there, asking why he's not investigating ex-president Donald Trump, he couldn't offer a valid reason except to claim that there is no evidence of it. Some folks on the Internet, however, were quick to point out that Trump's 
tenure in the White House was filled with alleged influence peddling operations after uh, Comer revealed that his committee has no actual, you know, evidence against President Biden. Congressman Jimmy Gomez of California, Democrat, called it, quote, a politically driven fishing expedition. He said Republican hypocrisy on full display. He tweeted in response to that video you just heard. How can you launch an investigation without any evidence? This is a politically driven fishing expedition, he says, full stop. Lots of political stunts, not a lot of problem solving. But as several people noted in response to that same video, there actually is apparently, you know, a whole bunch of apparent evidence against Donald Trump when it comes to influence peddling. HuffPost White House correspondent SV Date called Comer uh, called Comer out for this, said, quote, Trump ran a bribery center five blocks from the White House, referring to the Trump D.C. hotel. Uh, Robert McGuire, the research director for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a good government group, uh, said, quote, just a stunning dereliction of duty. Trump brought in tens of millions of dollars as president from businesses that he refused to divest, which were used by special interests and foreign governments to enrich him while currying favor with him and his administration. Telling uh, Chairman Comer that he is, quote, happy to chat. Our friend David Korn of Mother Jones tweeted, quote, I know of two billion reasons Comer and the House Republicans should look at the Trump family regarding influence peddling and overseas dealings. Korn is referring to what you mentioned as that uh, two billion dollar, quote, investment that Trump son-in-law and senior White House advisor Jared Kushner received for his so-called investment fund just 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 days after leaving the White House last year. Two billion dollars from Saudi Arabia to the president's son-in-law, who is married to his eldest daughter, who also worked in the White House. Any influence peddling that might be worth investigating there, Congressman? Six months after leaving the White House, the New York Times reported last April Jared Kushner secured a $2 billion investment from a fund led by the Saudi Crown Prince, a close ally during the Trump administration. And this is important. Despite objections from the Saudi fund's own advisors about the merits of giving Jared $2 billion in this deal, the merits of giving $2 billion to a guy for a hedge fund who has never actually, he has zero evidence, I'm sorry, zero experience managing hedge funds. He's never done it before. Let's give him $2 billion. Maybe he'll do a good job. Any reason to think that that exchange of $2 billion to Donald Trump's son-in-law and daughter, both White House advisors, might be some form of, I don't know, influence peddling? MSNBC's Steve Bennon likened uh, Comer's interview there to, quote, watching a snake 
eat its own tail. Bannon also pointed to Comer's second attempt on Monday morning, the day after his Sunday appearance on CNN, which did not go that well for Comer either. This is uh, with Bloomberg's Emily Wilkins. She's the vice president of the National Press Club during a press club event with Comer on Monday when she apparently at one point mistakenly uh, says to Comer, uh, so you are asking questions about Trump? And he made clear that absolutely no, he is not. With respect to Trump, you know, a lot of the media, I, I went on, I love Pam Brown and I are, are friends. She's from Kentucky. I went on CNN last night, her last night on that show. Uh, she says, well, you know, you, why aren't you investigating Trump's mishandling of documents? Well, there's a special counsel. There's a special counsel, and I'm confident that special counsel is looking into everything. On well, and Trump's been investigating for with, six with years. Biden documents, although it sounds like you are yeah. planning on asking the national. So you are asking questions about Trump's documents, what was in them, how they got there. I, I, I want, I, I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. We're investigating the Biden family for influence peddling. We learned that they have classified documents in multiple locations. We are concerned, is that part of the influence penalty? I don't know. Yeah, that's it. Let me make clear. We are looking at Joe Biden, period, end of Only. story. And uh, she stepped on, Emily Wilkins stepped on her own question there when she said, but but there's a special counsel also looking at Donald Trump. As he was looking at Biden. Uh, yes, also looking at Biden. So he was suggesting, oh, we don't need to worry about Trump because there's a special counsel looking into that. But there's also one looking into Joe Biden. <laughs> Just completely undercutting his argument, but he doesn't even notice. So, you know, what he's absolutely not interested in is whether hundreds of classified documents, dozens and dozens of them still missing to this day. The DOJ has only the folders for those missing documents with the documents no longer in them. Where are they? Hundreds of them, as found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago after months of him refusing to return them and disallowing the Department of Justice to search themselves until they actually had to go and get a search warrant citing probable cause of ongoing federal felonies in order to seize whichever documents they could at Donald Trump's house at Mar-a-Lago. But I guess, you know, credit for being honest, perhaps, to Comer there, finally, uh, you know, sort of saying straight out he's no we're not actually investigating influence peddling we're investigating a president and his family because that's how republicans roll when they take the majority in the u.s house i guess so there's going to be a whole lot of this in the months ahead i'm sorry to say apologies in advance i will offer sort of two points for now one I know there are a lot of Democrats out there who are sort of freaked out for some reason about all of these these investigations that Republicans are going to be running into the Bidens and the administration and so forth. And I would suggest don't be don't be freaked out if there's any actual wrongdoing to be found. Well, great, let's find it. But for the most part, these are going to be, uh, pardon the expression, trumped up circuses, circus hearings that will not end up reflecting well on the Republicans who are running them. And there's already some evidence of that today from the clips that we played yesterday with Jim Jordan, chair of both the House Judiciary and the so-called weaponization of the federal government committees, 
being held to account by what? Who? Chuck Todd? Really? Of all people? Yeah. On NBC regarding Jordan's false claims about unequal treatment for the classified documents found and discovered and reported and returned by Joe Biden to the federal government versus the year and a half long and still ongoing effort to receive hundreds of such documents amounting to thousands of pages from Donald Trump. And then there's the clips of, uh, of, of Comer that we just played for you that do not reflect particularly well on him. And then there's more coming out uh, even today from a House hearing featuring the U.S. Comptroller General, Gene Dodaro, as the, uh, uh, the witness here, answering questions like this one from none other than Georgia Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Dodaro, can you tell me how much money was given to Drag Queen Story Hour? The, the, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Who? Drag queen story time, where where men dress up as oh, oh, women oh. And, and read confusing books to children. Yeah. First, I thought you said dry clean. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, I don't know the answer to either one of those two. Uh, oh, we need to look into this, and I, I urge you to do that. Um, they uh, Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Pennsylvania received $16,000 uh, for drag queen story time uh, from from COVID cash, um, I think this is an issue that needs to be looked into. A lot of this money went to things that it should have never gone to. Okay, well, let's find out what those things are at the dry clean story hour or whatever <laughs> it is. She's talking about uh, th- this c- committee was looking into the uh, the use of uh, PPP cash during uh, the worst of the COVID pandemic, the so-called COVID cash that she talks about. That uh, outlay of funding that helped businesses stay open and people stay employed during the pandemic. And so, uh, you know, talking about drag queen story hour, does does this make uh, the Republicans look particularly good? And then there was this next very next question also from Marjorie Taylor Greene about uh, so-called COVID cash to an elementary school for critical race theory, which is not taught in elementary schools uh, or something. You, you give it a listen. Dodaro, can you tell me uh, how much how much COVID cash went to CRT? CRT. Critical race theory in education. It's it's a racist right. uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education. Yeah. No, no, it's not. Uh, no, I do not know that. But I, I do know that there's f- provisions that the uh, federal funds generally are not used, they're supposed to be used for curriculum. Oh, uh, that it's a state. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, they, they receive $5.1 billion um, at, at an elementary school there that, that used it for equity and diversity um, so it's it's being used for these things. <laughs> yeah, five billion, five billion with a B to a grade school. Wow, that's a that's a rich grade fancy school, fancy school, huh? I have a feeling her information may not be accurate. It may not be. Uh, none of these things make these folks look good, in my opinion. And in fact, you know, I think a few months of this is going to help make them look terrible. But you know, hey, whatever. Good luck to them. The other point I wanted to make is that uh, based on at least what we have seen so far from some in the corporate media, shockingly, even people like Chuck Todd, I am hopeful. I'm not certain, but I am hopeful that maybe just maybe corporate media won't fall hook, line and sinker for all of this nonsense 
all over again this time around. I don't know. Maybe that's just wish casting on my part. But I hope I'm right. Uh, and by the way, uh, for the record, regarding Joe Biden, on Wednesday, the FBI searched President Joe Biden's vacation home at the at his uh, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware uh, home uh, without finding any classified documents that, according to the president's attorney, they did take the agents, took some handwritten notes and some other materials relating to Biden's time as vice president for review. The search was disclosed by Biden's personal attorneys themselves. And uh, this was the third for Biden home or office, third such search, all of which were done with consent and cooperation of the president. That by way of contrast with the search at Trump's Mar-a-Lago property, which was only done months after his refusal to respond to a subpoena. And after the FBI had to obtain a search warrant from a federal judge finding probable cause of multiple crimes. And then there is the stuff that really matters, where Republicans actually could do real harm to the nation and to the world by, for example, crashing the global economy because they refuse to agree that the federal government should pay for the stuff that Congress has already approved. But my guest joining me next, well, he has an idea or two about how Democrats could respond to that and avoid worldwide financial disaster. Maybe. The great Kevin Drum joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, I don't feel fine, but my guest joining me momentarily, Kevin Drum, he might feel fine. We'll ask him. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So the United States government, according to the U.S. Treasury Department, has hit the statutory limit for how much it may borrow through the issuance of U.S. Treasury bonds in order to pay off its obligations, to pay for stuff that Congress and U.S. presidents of both parties long ago agreed through hard-fought legislative processes to spend. Until both chambers of Congress pass a bill to raise or suspend our statutory debt ceiling limit, which it has done with a simple vote more than 80 times 
since the 1960s, including three times, by the way, without incident during the Trump presidency, the Treasury Department is taking what it calls extraordinary measures to make sure that the bills of the U.S. government are actually paid and that we do not default for the first time in history on our debts. That, however, can only go on for so long before, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, who has notified Congress about this, the federal agency simply runs out of ways to sort of move around accounts and payments in order to avoid a default. Such a default, economists of all parties tend to agree, would be catastrophic for the U.S. and for the world economy. As markets would plummet, millions of jobs would almost instantly be lost in the U.S., and the world's reliance on the U.S. dollar as its reserve currency could disappear, resulting in a deep recession or even depression, both in the U.S. and potentially across the globe. Luckily, there is an easy fix to all of this. Congress can simply vote to raise the dumb debt ceiling, which in truth shouldn't even have a limit. If Congress and the White House have committed to pay for stuff, well, we must cover what we have chosen to buy. But alas, the U.S. is one of the only developed countries in the world which still has a statutory borrowing limit in place, giving Republicans, when they hold some control of at least one body of Congress and when a Democrat is in the White House, and by the way, only when a Democrat is in the White House, has given them the ability to both pretend that they care about government spending and debt and the ability to hold the nation and global economy hostage to whatever demands they may come up with in exchange for not plummeting our economy into utter, unprecedented, wholly unnecessary chaos. Part of the recently, if barely elected, new GOP House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's agreement with the farthest right flanks of his far-right Republican caucus in order to ensure his election as Speaker was to allow them to make demands in exchange for increasing the limit on the government's ability to borrow money to pay its debts. What the far-right flank of the party actually wants in exchange for that vote remains unclear, even as the clock continues to tick towards the day, likely before or during June, when Secretary Yellen has said the U.S. government will fall over a fiscal cliff without the ability to pay our debts and assure the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Republicans initially suggested they wanted drastic cuts to popular social programs like Social Security and Medicare, at least until the party's 2024 frontrunner, Donald Trump, said out loud that he thought cuts to those popular programs should be off the table. For now, then, it's completely unclear what these Republicans actually want. Cuts to military spending seems unlikely. Increases in military spending also seems unlikely if they wish to maintain their pretend new position that they are worried about the national debt. In the meantime, the White House has said that while they're willing to negotiate on this year's spending bills with Republicans, a legitimate legislative process that is necessary during times of split control of the government, they are not willing to negotiate on the statutory need to raise the debt ceiling to cover the bills for what we have already spent. That, according to the White House, is more akin to hostage-taking, economic terrorism that they maintain they will not participate in, 
with memories of 2011, the last time a Democrat was in the White House with GOP control in Congress, when even concerns about default resulted in the U.S. seeing its AAA credit rating lowered for the first time in history, along with the loss of billions of dollars in the bargain. Which, by the way, only serves to increase, not decrease, the national debt that Republicans now pretend to care about since a Democrat is in the White House again. On Wednesday, Speaker McCarthy met with President Biden at the White House for the first time since McCarthy's nearly week-long 15-ballot election as GOP House Speaker. They are meeting as we go to air, but on Sunday, McCarthy said that he was looking forward to finding a, quote, reasonable and responsible way that we can lift the debt ceiling when the two sit down at the White House. McCarthy said he wants to address spending cuts along with raising the debt limit, even though the White House has ruled out linking those two issues together. I know the president said he didn't want to have any discussions, but I think it's very important that our whole government is designed to find compromise. Mm -hmm. So I want to sit down together, work out an agreement that we can move forward to put us on a path to balance at the same time, not put any any of our debt in jeopardy at the same time. Well, ask whether he would make a guarantee uh, that we wouldn't put the uh, our debt in jeopardy. McCarthy said, quote, there will not be a default, though he suggested that 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 declaration depended on the willingness of Biden and Democrats to negotiate. The White House confirmed the two would be meeting on a, quote, range of issues that the president looked forward to, quote, strengthening his working relationship with McCarthy, noting that the House, uh, the first House bill that was passed by Republicans this year to slash IRS funding would ultimately increase the deficit. And they made clear once again that Biden is not willing to entertain policy concessions in exchange for lifting the debt limit. So. How does the dangerous game of chicken move forward here? Should the White House negotiate with Republicans on this matter? Are there plans in place to avoid the worst case scenario if McCarthy and his party stick to their guns and really do let the good faith and credit of the U.S. government fall over a cliff for the first time in history? For some answers and or some insight on all of this, we turn to an old friend, another old school blogger who's been around long enough to remember the last time congressional Republicans cost the nation billions of dollars by playing this dangerous game back in 2011. Kevin Drum is a longtime, much beloved political blogger, formerly at Washington Monthly and then Mother Jones, and for the old timers, even at Cal Pundit. Before that, he is now uh, back on the uh, on the independent blogging beat, including even Friday cat blogging, which I think he invented at jabberwalking.com, where he recently offered a few ideas of his own on how the White House and the nation could move forward on this without crashing the economy and even without any help from Republicans, if necessary. Oh, Kevin Drummond has been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. It is. How you doing, Brad? Hanging in there, sir. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you've you've got some uh, very helpful helpful thoughts, actually. I think on on how Democrats may wish to respond to this idiocy in the event that Republicans hold their ground in the House and refuse to raise this dumb debt limit. 
And I want to get to those in a bit. But uh, first, Kevin, a, a few questions about this dumb fight in the first place. Should the White House maintain their no negotiations on the debt ceiling position or given that Republicans now control, if barely, uh, at least, you know, one chamber of Congress, should there be some negotiations on this? As McCarthy argues, our government is designed to find compromise. Uh, well, that uh, that yeah, becomes a very semantic issue. What actually mean do you mean by negotiation? But if you get away from that, you're right. I go back enough that I remember 2011 when this last happened, mm-hmm. and that was when uh, uh, Obama was president. Mm-hmm. And what happened then was that Obama did end up making a deal with Republicans to raise the debt limit. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there there's a lot of reports out there that that Biden, as vice president, then was just appalled by the whole thing. I mean, he tried to make a deal and couldn't with the, uh, uh, you know, the Tea Party Republicans at the mm-hmm. time. And, and he was appalled. He just couldn't believe that this had happened and that they were doing this, and apparently sort of decided then and there that if he ever became president, he just wasn't going to do it. He just wasn't going to feed this notion that you can hold, you know, the U.S. debt hostage in return for you know, whatever spending cuts or whatever stuff you want. Mm-hmm. And so I think he's pretty serious about not negotiating on that. Now, does that mean that no deal will ever be made and it'll just be called something else? Well, who knows? But um, but I think he is serious about not, not negotiating over this. Well, you know, if he is serious, uh, that, you know, that is a dangerous game because to be serious about it, you have to be willing, in this case, to let the hostage die, which is a pretty scary thought in this case, given that that's the, uh, you know, the U.S. government going into uh, a default for the first time. Now, at the same time, on the other side, McCarthy said on Sunday, quote, there will not be a default. And far be it for me to give negotiating advice to Republicans. But didn't he just give away pretty much all of his leverage by admitting that he would not, in fact, shoot the hostage? Oh, maybe, maybe not. There are, there are ways around that. Um, you know, what this comes down to is, I mean, there's no reason to think that this is an issue of the president versus Congress, that the president thinks we should pay our bills, and then it's up to him to figure out a way to get Congress to do it. You know, the debt limit is a congressional thing. Really, the president, in a way, doesn't need to be involved at all. Right. It's completely up to them to negotiate among themselves mm-hmm. what, they're, what they're going to do. Um, but what this really is, is not president versus Congress, it's Democrats versus Republicans. And Republicans are um, quite sure that they can count on Democrats to be the adults in the room. Mm. Right? They can, you know, McCarthy feels like he can go into the White House and say, look, uh, you know, I've got all these MAGA Republicans, the Freedom Caucus and those guys, and, and they're just not going to vote for it. There's just nothing I can do about it. And so you're going to have to step up be the adult in the room and do something that I can take back to them. And I just don't think Biden wants to, I don't think Biden wants to play that game anymore. So, and you're right, it's dangerous. Um, so, you know, it, it, it could end up with, uh, uh, with the debt ceiling not being raised for, you know, a few days or a week or however long it takes for everyone to come to their senses. Well, let's be clear, Kevin Drum. This is not like uh, shutting down the government, where the government can go on, uh, you know, in a, a sort of a limited basis um, for a while during a government shutdown. This is different. This is default. Uh, this is when we're, you know, no longer able to, uh, you know, pay back uh, U.S. Treasury bonds and so forth. This is uh, a very different matter, no? Well, 
Uh, actually, no. No, it's not. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that the only thing the debt limit does is it means you, that we can't borrow anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? So we can pay 90% of our bills mm. just by using tax money that's coming in all the time. The problem is that we're running a deficit, so we need to pay the other 10% of the bills by borrowing more money. Mm-hmm. So we can pay 90% of our bills even after the debt limit um, stops, but then there's going to be 10% that we don't have to pay, that we, that we can't pay. Can't pay. And that doesn't have to include bonds. I mean, you could keep paying interest on our bonds mm-hmm. and make the cut somewhere else. I mean, it would, it would not be good for the country, and it would not be good for what the markets think of, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it doesn't have to include default. That is, that's a political issue more, and it's, it's do you want to take the chance of, of, of having people you know, run TV ads or whatever saying, oh, you kept on paying bondholders, who are mostly rich people or other governments, mm-hmm. you kept on paying bondholders, but you ended up cutting food stamps for poor people. Right. I mean, that's a bad luck, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and you mentioned, Kevin, uh, that it's really a fight between, uh, ultimately between Republicans and Democrats in Congress. If there are a handful of Republicans in the House who are willing to vote for a clean debt ceiling uh, raise or even just a, a, a few conditions uh, to go along with it, should the Democrats vote? en masse in the House to help the Republicans out of this jam by voting with, uh, I think it would only take about four Republicans, so voting with about four Republicans to just put this nonsense to an end before the economy gets it. I mean, it's, you know, nice economy you got there. Hate to see something happen to it. Oh, sure. I I mean, if Democrats can find a few Republicans to vote for a clean uh, 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 debt ceiling bill, then sure, that's what they want. So the problem is that Kevin McCarthy is still Speaker of the House, and he has to let it come up for a vote. So even if you get a few Republicans, that doesn't mean it can immediately come up for a vote. Mm. Um, you, know, you can try with a discharge petition. There's right. issues with that, but you might be able to do that on the House floor. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, in, in the end, all of this is going to take at least some number of Republicans, uh, probably a small number, to vote for the debt ceiling increase. And that's how this will eventually end. And, of course, it's also stupid and unnecessary, as uh, as you point out. Last month at your site, uh, jabberwalking.com, you wrote a, a short piece sort of listing uh, like two ways that Democrats could potentially move forward without the help of any Republicans, with a clear preference, I believe, uh, for the interesting second second option. But uh, let me walk through these here so you can... Uh, we haven't really talked about them on the show. Uh, this first one has been around for a while. First is the, the platinum coin idea. Some have been pushing this for years on the Internet, going all the way back to the uh, the same fight, you know, during the Obama administration, at least, in which the president, it is argued, could simply overcome the debt ceiling by minting one huge trillion dollar coin or some such. I have never really understood how this is supposed to work. Kevin, can you explain the theory and why it would or wouldn't actually succeed in, in overcoming this standoff as you see it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's easy. There was a bill passed, oh, you know, 20, 30 years ago that um, allowed uh, the mint uh, to, to mint platinum coins, you know, just like we do gold coins mm-hmm. for people who just want gold bullion. Well, this was for platinum coins for people who just wanted to buy platinum. Mm-hmm. And they, the problem was that uh, we, had, we had not been 
our mint had not been successful in competing in the gold market because we didn't have big enough gold coins. It turned out that buyers wanted to buy large denomination coins, like $1,000 gold coins mm. or, or, or more. Mm-hmm. Well, when, they, when, they, when they wrote the bill to allow the mint to, to produce platinum coins, they said, oh, yeah, they can do it in any denomination they want. Okay. And that was, that was to, to get more business. Uh-huh. They forgot to put a limit on that. Okay. And so what that means is that technically, by the letter of the law, yeah, they could, you could mint a trillion-dollar platinum coin. And if you do that, then somebody from the Treasury, you know, Janet Yellen goes to the, to the Mint and picks up that trillion-dollar coin and walks over to the Federal Reserve and says, hey, put this in our account, and then you can spend it. Okay. Okay, and that's the idea. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's, that, sounds both, the, that sounds both ridiculous and reasonable at the same time, Kevin. Exactly. By the letter of the law, uh-huh. it's, it's legal. Okay. Um, but, yes, at the same time, it's stupid and ridiculous, and um, and it also, um, you know, even if you don't agree about that, and you say, fine, it's ridiculous and dumb, well, Republicans do ridiculous, dumb things all the time, maybe we can do this once. Um, there's another problem, and that is that when Janet Yellen takes this coin over to the Fed, mm-hmm. the Fed has to accept it, and they don't have to. Uh, okay. And Jerome Powell could simply decide, no, I'm, I'm not going to accept it. This is ridiculous and dumb, and I'm not taking a trillion-dollar coin and putting it in your account. And there's no telling. Uh, you know, maybe he would do that, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe Janet Yellen would be willing to mint the coin, maybe not. Uh-huh. My guess is I, I don't think the Fed would take it. And if the Fed and, did take it, would, it there would, would there still be uh, presumably a challenge at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to say this is completely ridiculous, this doesn't cover our debts? Yeah, let's um, let's let's put that aside just for a second and uh-huh. go on to the second option. Okay. Well, uh, the second option, and well, actually, part of of the second option, uh, and and part of what you describe as your preferred solution, is that uh, you cite Section Four of the Fourteenth Amendment. This one comes up a lot as well. Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution, mm-hmm. which states in part, seemingly plainly, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions, shall not be questioned. That seems pretty clear in truth, and I've heard from uh, you know a number of people asking me why that constitutional clause is not simply enough on its own to allow the debt limit law to be ignored as unconstitutional. And I don't really know the answer to that, other than I don't know if the matter has ever been tested by the Supreme Court. Uh, no, it has never been tested, and um, you're you're right. It's 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 simple. It's called uh, it's called the constitutional option, mm-hmm. and it's very simple. And that clause in the Fourteenth Amendment means exactly what it sounds like it means. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time it was written, uh, Republicans, you know, who in those days were the good guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Republicans, the radical Republicans in Congress, were afraid that they would lose power at some point. And Democrats would then try to, um, to to not pay legitimate debts from the Civil War, mm-hmm. and they wanted to stop that. So, it, uh, you know, unlike the trillion-dollar coin, which was just sort of a mistake, um, this clause was written in the Constitution really exactly for the purpose that we're talking about now, which is should the government's debts always be honored? And the answer in there there is yes, they should always be honored, and. and and it's unconstitutional to not honor them. Mm-hmm. So, 
yeah, my preference is, you know, forget the trillion-dollar coin and that nonsense. Just keep, just keep paying. Just keep running up the debt. Just keep issuing debt, run up the debt um, to pay our bills. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the reasons I, I like this is that I don't think it matters that much. Whether you do the coin or whether you do this, it's going to court. Mm-hmm. Right? And it will very quickly go to the Supreme Court, and, and they're the ones who are going to decide. And I think either way, whether it's the coin or just paying, the arguments in front of the court would be the same. And, you know, the, I mean, in the yeah. past, I mean, you know, even a few years ago, Brad, mm-hmm. I would have, you know, I would have said, oh, uh, you know, and the court will the court will back up the White House <laughs> on this. Right. Right. But these days, I'm a lot less sure. I mean, I think right. they would. I think they would. I think they would just refuse to get involved. This would be one of those disputes between the two other branches where they would say, this is not... Um, this is not a matter for the courts. You guys fight it out. So to be clear, which, which in effect would be a win for Biden, but yeah, I don't know. These days, I don't. I just don't know how. I don't know how they would rule these days. That is, that's true. You you can't know anymore. So to be clear, uh, Kevin Drum, your plan essentially, uh, and as you wrote it at uh, at your blog, um, a the spending in question has already, or actually, get the D- Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel to issue a, an opinion stating a the spending in question has already been legally appropriated, and then b cite the Constitution that says the U.S. Uh, United States a debt quote shall not be questioned and then tell Republicans to pound sand and just keep operating the, go- uh, the government as normal, writing checks to grandma for Social Security and uh, let Republicans go to court to ask a judge to tell the Treasury Department to stop sending checks to grandma and stop making payments on our on our uh, U.S. Treasury bills. Is that essentially it? And just keep going and see what they do. Did I really say that? Just tell Republicans to pound sand? Yes, you did. I like that. Yes, you I did. did. I, I like that. <laughs> and yes, I mean, but that, but that's really it. It's, it's just cite the Fourteenth Amendment and just keep paying, and then go to court. And, and I think if you do the trillion dollar coin, it's going to be the same thing. Even if the Fed accepts it, mm-hmm. you're going to court. So one way or another, a judge is going to end up deciding this, no matter what. And, and a judge is uh, going to have to end up deciding. Hey, stop paying grandma that Social Security check. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, how many judges, even Supreme Court judges, how many of them really want to do that? I don't know, Kevin. I used to know. I I don't know either, for sure. I mean, you suggest that this would, quote, kill the debt ceiling nonsense once and for all. And that does sound great. And I admit reading this and thinking, well, that does sound like a really smart idea, to be frank. Uh, That said, you end your piece uh, by describing that option as, quote, a low risk option that's worth a try. Um, Low risk? Really? Well, low risk in the sense that I, I don't I don't think any harm would come. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that uh, the Supreme Court would rule against you, uh-huh. and well, then you sort of end up back where you started, where you have to negotiate with Congress over this. Um, but that's what we're doing now, anyway. So I don't think I don't think there's a big downside to it, um, but th- there is some upside now. You know, I should add to this that I, I don't think Biden's going to do either of these things. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's going to do the coin. I don't think he's going to just keep paying. I think, you know, he's an old fat. You know, you know, he's old. He's he's been in Congress forever, in the Senate forever. Um, he's an institutionalist. Mm-hmm. He's not going to want to do radical things like 
minting trillion dollar coins <laughs> or anything similar. I think he's going to just play the game with Congress the way it's always been played. Uh, you know, I only wrote that because I, you know, I think this is an option. I think it would. I think there's a decent chance that it would work. And then all of this sort of underscores uh, just the the idiocy of this entire matter that we even have to vote on the debt ceiling to pay for stuff that we've already bought. Essentially, should the right. uh, Democrats next time they have control of both branches of Congress and the White House simply vote to do away with this entire idea of a debt ceiling so we don't keep running into this idiocy every few years? And if the answer to that is yes, uh, Kevin, I would say why. Why didn't the Democrats do that last year when they did have that control in Congress? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the answer is obviously yes, they should just get rid of it. But I, I don't know. Um, you know, Chuck Schumer says, oh, we didn't, we didn't do it because we just didn't have enough time. There was some other stuff we wanted to do. We ran out of time and we couldn't do it. And, and I, I don't know whether to buy that or not. Mm. You know, one of the, one of the things that most most people don't know about the debt limit is it's kind of like a trillion dollar coin it's just an accident mm. you know the reason the debt limit was ever put in place in the first place was back in world war one mm-hmm. congress had to actually vote on every single appropriation mm-hmm. and they got tired of that you know every single every single bill that would you know sell some war bonds mm-hmm. they had to vote on it and so they finally said look forget it we're just going to pass a debt ceiling that says you can pass all the bonds you want up to a certain amount. And it was designed to make it easier mm-hmm. to pay our bills. And, it, you know, nobody, and, and it was meant for wartime as well. Right. And then it just, it just stayed and eventually kind of, you know, morphed into this, into this, you know, monster that we have today where it's used, uh, you know, it has no use at all mm-hmm. except for Republicans to, to hold the debt hostage every yep. few years. And uh, could they, uh, by the way, Kevin, I I know you're not the Senate parliamentarian officially, but uh, could they have passed, could Democrats have passed something like that without uh, bumping into the filibuster uh, rule in the U.S. Senate by passing it under a reconciliation package? Would that have been allowed as far as you know? So they could have just passed it last year with 50 votes? I I think it would qualify. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just my opinion. Like like you said, it would be up to the parliamentarian. Uh, The only issue there is that um, reconciliation bills um, you can only pass. You can only pass stuff by reconciliation if earlier in the year you've made it part of a reconciliation resolution. Mm. Okay. Right. So you have to do that, and then you have to to pass it uh, later in the year as part of your reconciliation bill because you only you only get one reconciliation bill a year. Mm Um, yeah, and there's kind of weird issues around that, but right. um, it does take a little bit of planning, and, and I'm not I'm not sure that the Senate had even done that last year. Gotcha. But but you know, there's no question that with a little bit of planning, it could be done, and it should be done. I mean, Democrats, the yep. next time they have control of, of Congress, I mean, they've had this opportunity a few times, yep. and they should. <laughs> you know, it would be no trouble the next time. Next time they're in control. And they have a resolute, and they have a reconciliation bill. They're going to pass. All they have to do is toss in the debt ceiling. Yep, and just toss um, in, get rid of it, suspend it, whatever yeah. Uh, yeah. for real. And right. you, uh, well, I, I certainly am interested uh, in your idea of uh, sort of working around the need to even do that by saying, you know what, the hell with you. We're just going to continue government as usual. If you guys don't like it, 
you go to court to shut down the American economy and see how that goes. I do like your plan in in your article, and I will link to it when we post today's show at bradblog.com, headlined, How to Handle the Coming Debt Ceiling Standoff. But it does sound to me like you're thinking... Well, from your description, Kevin, it sounds like you're, you're thinking that Republicans will uh, ultimately blink here and uh, not default, and somehow this will all work out just fine. Eventually, um, they will. The question is whether this time around they might blink maybe a week after mm. we hit the debt ceiling instead of a week before. So I don't know. But, you know, I just, uh, just to... Um, uh, 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 sort of confirm something you just said that uh-huh. um, it's important, which is if this goes to court for one reason or another, it does. It, that that's actually pretty useful because it makes it makes Republicans really take a stand. I mean, it really makes right. makes it clear that Republicans are the ones who are trying to cut off mm-hmm. whatever food stamps or, or social security or whatever it is, and they have to go into court and argue for doing this. Um, whereas, you know, one of the reasons they get away with that is that they they think that no matter no matter who's really responsible, they think the president will take the blame just because he's the president. And they might be right about that. So it would be good to, to get it clear to the American public that if this mm-hmm. happens, it's Republicans making it happen, not not Joe Biden. It would be good to make that clear. The conditions under which it would have to happen, however, still <laughs> frighten me, Kevin Trump. Well... Uh, yes. So Kevin Drum uh, is uh, the longtime blogger who you can, who you can now find at jabberwalking.com. You can also find him on the Twitters at KDrum. As I said, it has been uh, a very long time, Kevin. Let's uh, try to not make it such a long time uh, again in the future. Great speaking with you, my friend. Yeah, nice to talk to you too, Brad. Thank you, brother. Okay, we have got to get out. My thanks <laughs> yes, to, do. don't laugh at me, I know I'm running late, <laughs> yes. uh, to my producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, or you just want to hear it again or share it with someone you know, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where, yes, we are celebrating our 19th anniversary, now in our 20th year all made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep going. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That day marked a pivotal moment in the continuing Flint sit-down strike. The nationwide strike against GM started in Flint, Michigan in late December. By late January, UAW organizers agreed that nearby Chevy engine plant number four had to be shut down. 
It was a massive facility. It employed 4,000 workers on two ships. The plant superintendent had been firing union activists. Armed guards patrolled every inch of the facility to prevent a sit-down. Union organizers knew there were company spies in their ranks. They planned the takeover by staging distracting job actions at nearby Chevy plants number 9 and then number 6. This would draw the guards away from plant number four. And so on this day, just as the day shift was ending, workers sat down at Chevy plant number nine. The company guards were ready to launch an attack. They began beating and gassing the sit-downers. The women's emergency brigade smashed plant windows to dissipate the gas. The diversion worked. Guards left Chevy number four unattended. Workers then turned off all the machines and barricaded themselves in. The plant guards tried to re-enter and were met with pistons, connector rods, and fire hoses. The Women's Emergency Brigade gathered outside the plant and locked arms. UAW organizer Joe Sayan announced, quote, We want the whole world to understand what we are fighting for. We are fighting for freedom and life and liberty. This is our great opportunity. What if we should be defeated? What if we should be killed? We have only one life. That's all we can lose, and we might as well die like heroes than like slaves. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor History in 2.